Well, hello, and today on Rockus Bacchus, I'm very pleased to welcome a multi-talented professional who is also, among her many talents, uh, a uh, death doula. So uh, welcome, Julie Keon. If you could maybe explain to us a little bit what a doula is and specifically what a death doula is. Sure. Uh, How are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good, all in all. Good. So... Um, I started out as a birth doula. Most people know what that is, and that's a a person who helps a woman and her partner through childbirth uh, in non-medical ways. And uh, probably in the last few years, there's been a revival of what's known as family-led death care or community uh, death care. Meaning that we there there are people who wish to have more um, hands-on care of their loved ones once they die or when they're dying. The problem is that over you know the last hundred years, death has moved into the hands of the funeral industry, and so uh, there are a lot of people who do not have the skills anymore to care for their own loved ones. Right, and so that's that's where where death doulas come in. Um, you know, it's it's a uh, it's kind of the the flip side of the same coin, I suppose, um, you know, where one one looks after the beginning of life and the other cares for the end of life. And, you know, it's, it's really about helping people remember those skills so that uh, for those families who wish to look after their own loved ones, they they have the skills to do that. And then they they, they don't need to have a lot of um, intervention from other other people. I, I, when we first spoke, I mentioned uh, this to you. Um, I, ha- I have a, hypo- a hypothesis, which I think you probably uh, support, th- that we've gotten away from the very important part of uh, life of, of death, and we've it's become more commercialized, possibly because of you know we've moved into larger urban centers, and there's not the people to you know y- you don't know your neighbor as well in your community, so you might not participate in a funeral rites or uh, anything like that, so it's turned over to, you know, a larger funeral conglomerate, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, and and we also we also just are not exposed to to death as a as a normal part of of life. You know, I think when when people were uh, more apt to be living on farms or grow up on farms before they moved to the city. You know, part of part of living on a farm is seeing the the natural cycle with you know with crops or with with the farm animals or that kind of thing. So, um, and we also used to live you know in multi generational homes where we would you know I know my own mother talks about when her grandparents lived with them and died at home, so she was exposed to that growing up. It was just part it was just part of her life. You know that you cared for people when they were dying and you looked after them. They died at home and. You're more involved with all of that. And then we also just have a death-denying culture, you know, in general. We're, we're, so, uh, we're, we're so hell-bent to find cures for everything and to, um, to stay young. You know, all of those things are symptoms of a death-denying culture. Well, especially in Western culture, uh, the, the young and beautiful look where the more aged and weathered look uh, that I have is uh, it's, <laughs> me too. <laughs> it's it's preferable. I mean, you see it in the movies, you see it in popular culture, um, but what you don't see is, and and what many of the people who uh, are the three people that actually listen to this show on a regular basis <laughs> um, have experienced 
is death very personal um, and often quite violent. Um, so so the, the crowd crowd we're speaking to today is very familiar with death, but unfortunately it's more often more of a violent death because of uh, the large military component. And uh, I, I think that type of death scares the hell out of most people. But a, a normal process where you just go through aging and eventual death, we've, we, we still somehow become afraid of it. Yes, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Death, death in general. And then if you start getting into to deaths that are, you know, unexpected, tragic, violent deaths, um, you know, people, people run the other way. <laughs> they don't even want to hear about it or talk about it. And where do you think that stems from? Do you think it's because of our, um, like we we were saying earlier about the urbanization of uh, our society and the getting away from uh, turning turning these sort of tasks of looking after our dead to uh, businesses? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I have to I have to you know say that the um, for most pe- like most people it doesn't appeal to them to look after their own loved ones. Like for the, for the majority of people, they're not interested in that. I mean, I think that if we can even give people permission to be as involved in their, their loved ones dying and death as much as they're comfortable with, that's a start. Um, You know, just something as simple as when someone dies that we, we don't feel rushed to call the funeral home and have them taken away if they die at home or die in a, in a hospice or in a hospital that we encourage families to sit with the body for a little while. It helps their brain to come to terms with what has happened. When we, when we rush things so quickly, it's, it's part of that whole denial process. I think it really um, complicates the bereavement then for people. You know, and that's, I mean, we can get into talking about grief, you know, as part of this discussion, because I think, I think that our, our way of looking at death definitely impacts how we grieve as well, what do you, where what do you there's mean a whole lot that? of denial there too. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by uh, how, we, how we interact affects our view on death or how we view death interacts? With grief, you mean? Uh, grief, sorry, yeah. With grief, um, well, I think I think what happens, you know, with with this whole denial around death is we also have these very strange ideas of what grief entails or what bereavement entails, and and you know a lot of that is um, outdated um, information, like that we go through these five linear stages of grieving, which is is not accurate at all. With ex- um, like depression and anger and. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's kind of like been seeped into popular culture. And the problem with that is it ends up complicating a process that is very normal and natural. And so um, people end up having, you know, layers and layers and layers of um, stuff to work through that if somebody had just said to them, oh, no, you're going to grieve in your own individual way. You're not going to go through these nice, you know, linear stages. It's going to be really messy. It's going to be with you forever. Yes, it will not, you know, define you at some point, but you will always be sad. You will always have grief around the person you you had to let go of. And um, people would people would kind of have a sense of relief and probably do um do the do the grief, you know, in a different way as opposed to having all this additional anxiety and stress about if they're doing it right. If that makes any sense. 
<laughs> you mean people are actually worried about whether they're grieving properly? Well, yeah. I mean, I see people, I'm a grief counselor, and so I see people, I, I believe that, you know, people generally don't need grief counseling because it is a normal process. What they need is someone to validate that what they're doing is good and accurate and right and um, and give them support in how they're feeling and say, oh, yes, oh, yes, the fact that you're still crying five weeks after your partner of 50 years has died, yep, that's normal. Right. Because, it, because they're, told it's, they're told they should be getting over it by now, you know, so... Yeah, and I and I think I think that's ridiculous. My my grandmother, who was married to my grandfather for geez decades, you know, well over well over sixty five years, when he passed passed away, it was very she she never really fully recovered. Like she, she no, she and she shouldn't be expected to. No, and but it was it was interesting in the fact that. Uh, she had male suitors, if you will, <laughs> sound old fashioned. <laughs> um, but she just, she just couldn't. You know, her grief was so deep that she didn't really what we would, the rest of us might call, or I would call. I don't know how you'd put it. She didn't really move on. She didn't, she didn't sort of take the grief and uh, you know keep it, you know, and and, and uh, honor it, um, and and move on with other social other social engagements, if you will. Right. So, which, which, which is okay. Right. But it, maybe there was, maybe there was no, I mean, okay. So from a woman's perspective, um, if I've been with the same man for 60 years or 70 years, I am not probably going to turn around and have to be bothered with all of that again. <laughs> <laughs> it's true true um, i mean if she you know if you know yeah you take on a lover maybe but none of none of that all of that business there's that at that point you just want to be independent i think well, i wasn't thinking of a <laughs> that's lover a whole so other much. podcast <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't thinking of a lover so much especially for my grandmother but a, a, compa- a companion but uh, yeah the the old fellas might have had something else in mind <laughs> but um, but what you're saying though is is um in our culture with grief we we do a lot we use the words like uh moving on recovering um getting over it getting through it and you know i think once once we start to recognize that grief is um the intensity of grief in the, that you have in the early days and weeks and months it does settle down, you know, the edges aren't as sharp and you, you do manage to kind of um, return to the land of the living, so to speak, that you're able to enjoy things. But you, people always carry that sadness with them. And sometimes there's a trigger that, you know, they're driving down the road and a song comes on and they get hit with this, like, overwhelming grief that they have to, you know, pull off the road and, and go into that big, heavy, snotty, bawling um, kind of a place. And that's, you know, those are, we call them, they're called grief ambushes and they happen, you know, 20 years after a significant loss. So the saying time heals all wounds might be better uh, stated as time softens. Uh, yeah. Wounds, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's what you do with time, you know, 
I've, um, I have had people who have come to see me who, you know, had a significant loss and 25 years later, they're still in a place where they're very, um, uh, they're, they're, I don't like to say stuck, but they're, they haven't been able to uh, return to the land of the living as fully maybe as they, they would have liked. And sometimes it just takes a few sessions of somebody to listen and to, you know, validate what they had gone through and give them some tips to help them to honor their loved one. Cause we also have this idea that when someone dies, we have to stop talking about them. We have to stop, um, you know, bringing them up or honoring them or whatever. And I, I think that that, uh, that also causes more problems than anything. I think, I think it's normal to stay connected to our loved ones who have died, you know, well, in interesting ways. We're, we're certainly on the far spectrum of, uh, I think there's a, a tribe in Indonesia or in, in somewhere in that part of the world where they yeah. uh, roll out the bones or uh, yeah, uh, they, they take out their, their um, ancestors and they put them in a clean funeral shroud and um, yep. carry them around and yep. as an act of remembrance where we, where we sort of tend to, it it's a, the person is dead and, and our attitude towards death is, Again, we're so so distanced from it. Once that person's dead, we try to shove it out of our out of our minds, and yeah, that yeah. that I think can probably cause more harm and a longer grieving process than uh, than it needs to be. If we if we would simply accept death as part of life, yeah, and 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 be okay with talking about our loved ones and. Um, you know, doing things like, you know what, if, if your loved one, let's, for example, their favorite, favorite time of the year was Christmas. Yeah. Well, if you set a place at the table every Christmas for them and you, you know, you put a candle where their plate would be and you light it and you just say, you know, we're thinking of dad today and how much he loved Christmas and how much we miss him and we'll trust that he's with us today in his in spirit or in whatever form he has found himself in, whatever. Um you just you do that every Christmas and it becomes a ritual and it's and it's comforting and it's you're continuing to have a relationship with your loved one even though they have died. Yeah, that's, and 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 it brings a sort of beauty to the death, uh, and yeah. the memories and a good memory rather than a tearful we you know miss you at this point, Dad. Um, I mean, you, yeah, you can miss him, but again, yeah, that's a good idea setting a place at the table. You know, and there's I mean, there's so many things that people people are. Humans are really creative, you know, and um, sometimes they need a little bit of guidance, but um, people can get very creative in how they, how they honor loved ones. I think we instinctively know that we want to have some kind of connection with our loved ones, but our, our culture tells us that, you know, you do the funeral after three days of the death get the funeral done, they're buried, and then, and then that's it. You don't talk about them again. Nobody wants to hear you talking about them again. And if we would be more open, when I see people, you know, when I'm out who I know have gone through a death, I'm, I'm not the one that runs down another aisle to avoid them, which, you know, grieving people will report that they notice people um, avoiding them because, you know, they don't want to talk to them. They don't want to talk about the death that makes them uncomfortable. Um, so I'm the one that will go up to people and say, you know, you know, how, how are you doing? How are you doing in this, in this moment? I will never say like, how are you doing today? They'll say, how do you think I'm doing? You know, my, my sister just died. So, 
you give people space and you'll know very quickly if they want to talk about it. Some people don't, but when you, when you open the door to let people say their loved one's name and talk about them, it brings such relief. So, you know, as a community, we need to be more open, I think, and supportive of the ones who are grieving. Yeah, and I've, I've seen that pulling away um, quite frequently from someone who's uh, just lost a close family member. Uh, and I may have been guilty of it myself over the years. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've certainly gotten better at uh, um, speaking to those who've lost uh, lost uh, someone to death, um, f- possibly because I've had to do it so often. But uh, yeah. it, 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 does, it does often, you can see the sense of relief uh, on the person's face or how they stand. They seem to relax more into, the, into, into you and, and uh, um, they, uh, they feel your empathy, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So, and, feel, and feel that you're not going to shrink away from having these conversations. You know, I've worked with people who... You know, they want to mark a significant anniversary of a death. You know, maybe maybe they feel that there were a lot of, um, you know, uh, things that happened after a death between family members, especially deaths that are unexpected, you know, or tragic deaths. And to, to sit with a family and help them to sort through, um, you know, what this death meant to them, how it, how it changed all of their lives, and then help them to create, a, um, you know, some kind of, ritual or way of marking you know the anniversary of the death it 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 can be so um healing for people and i want to say too another way that we deny death is we use we use every other word besides the d word right Mm -hmm. we'll say we'll say lost passed away uh gone that kind of thing instead of saying died dead death we we try to avoid saying those words because they're you know they can be it can feel harsh. It is, and and it's it's similar to uh, the word suicide. Um, as a, as a person who's done uh, um, not suicide counseling but suicide prevention uh, training, one of the words you don't avoid using is suicide and kill yourself. You don't use words like you plan right, on hurting yourself or commit, yourself or, commit yeah. suicide. Like like it's a you know a choice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's or committing a crime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So how do, how does how does one be not become a death doula but how how does one become um how, how do I contact you like I'm someone who's about to lose a, a long-term family member or uh, someone close to me. How 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 do you get involved or how do I find out there's anybody like you? Well, well, there's, I mean, there's a couple of things that I do now is I, um, I teach a course for people who are, um, you know, who are healthy generally, usually healthy and living. And um, it's called, it's called ready or not preparing for the inevitable. And that course kind of takes all aspects of death and dying and helps people to sit through and think about their own deaths. And from that course, people usually gain so much um, information and knowledge and sort through what they want for themselves that it, it helps them then to also talk to other family members. And so that's where the whole, you know, community death care, family-led death care comes in, where when people have the knowledge that they need, then, then they can pass it on to 
their loved ones, you know, and say, hey, have you thought about what you want when you die? And did you ever consider this? And whatever, they have those conversations. Because those conversations need to happen long before a person is on their deathbed. Right. But again, you know, it's a hard sell to say to people, hey, do you want to come and take a course for five weeks and talk about your eventual death? (laughs) Because people don't want to think about it. No, because people don't want to think about it. Um, so so th- that's one thing that I encourage people to do is to really get that stuff done. And it's not just about wills and whether or not you want to be cremated or buried, because that's, that's very practical. But it's also all the emotional stuff and looking at, at how we deal with things as a culture. Um, as far as, you know, when people want to care for somebody at home or they, you know, they've get, been diagnosed with a terminal illness and they're not really sure... Um, you know, what their options are. I I will do consultation sessions with people. And right now, of course, I do it by Zoom. But um, that just gives people a space to ask all the questions. Like, you know, what is hospice like? And if I die at home, what does that look like? And, and you know, will one person be able to support me when I die at home? And what are the practicalities I need to think about? So, so that's what I do more than anything as a, you know, as a, as a doula or a death educator is I, is I really support people in um, becoming empowered, you know, so that they, they can make informed decisions when it comes to their dying and their death. And how did, how did you become so intimate with death? Like what, what drew you towards um, this kind uh, of counseling? Well, I started, I mean, I I was a birth doula from, you know, 20 years ago. And um, there's two things actually that came into play. One was um, in 2010, my grandmother became ill. And my mother, who's a retired nurse, decided to, you know, we knew she wasn't going to survive. So my mom decided to bring her home to die because that's what, that's how she was raised. You know, she was raised in an Irish home and that's what you do. You bring your dad home to die and, and you care for them yourself. So that week really changed my life because I was able to, um, you know, be be there throughout the week and helping, um, you know, just helping my mom care for my grandmother. And I, I learned very quickly that the skills that I used as a birth doula, you know, in helping women um, through childbirth were very similar to the skills that I used to help my grandmother in her dying. And this is before there was ever any you know, articles or anything. You never heard about the term death doula, you know, 11 years ago, 12 years ago. So that, that kind of happened organically. It was just like a a kind of a, a, you know, a light bulb moment that I had when I was caring for her. The other part of that was um, when she died um, after her death, you know, we had to call the, the nurse to come to pronounce her dead. And then the funeral home was called and they came in and they took her, took her out of the home to the funeral home. And I remember that struck me because um, it felt very um, strange to have been so intimately involved in her care for that whole week. And then we were asked to leave the room when she was placed into the body bag. I don't know what the, if there's a better term for that, but um, you know, and I just remember we were all sitting in the living room and removed from that part of it and then, you know, saw her wheeled, wheeled across the archway on the gurney being taken out to the waiting hearse. And I think what struck me about that, and this is, you know, this is, I'm going to share something very personal with, with you and, and your listeners, but I have a daughter who is, uh, who's deemed palliative because she has a, she has a life limiting illness. And I remember thinking, 
I cannot ever imagine someone coming into my home and taking my daughter's body out of my house. That, yeah. that just, that just, that just felt like that, that to me was so shocking that I couldn't imagine it. So that got me on this road of, you know, doing some, just doing some research and figuring out what, what can we do to avoid that? And so spoke with a friend who's a funeral director and, you know, she said, yeah, legally you can do everything. And then I, I enrolled in a, in a, you know, three month course in death midwifery mm-hmm. and learned that, you know, families in Ontario do not have to engage in the services of a funeral home at all. You know, families can, um, you know, look after their loved ones at home, transport their body to a crematorium or a cemetery in a closed container, can do all of the paperwork, um, sign on the line where, you know, a funeral director would sign, but a family member can act as the funeral director. Yeah next of kin and um, can do all aspects of the, of the funeral, the burial, everything without, without using a funeral home. Now with that said, most people like to have the assistance of a funeral home. So I'm not in any way suggesting that, you know, people go that route because it does take a lot of care, a lot of preparation. Um, But for some families that, that is a, uh, that is a really good option. And, you know, for my family, that, that will be the option that we will choose, you know, for my parents, for our daughter, um, you know, we'll be comfortable doing all of that care. Yeah. If it all happens as, as we would plan, you know, I mean, things can happen that it wouldn't work out that way. But Yeah, I, I learned some years ago that uh, you didn't need a minister or anything for a funeral, uh, that everything could be done on its own. But most people aren't aware of that. I mean, for no. a wedding, you need a minister, but for a funeral, you can do it yourself. Well, for a wedding, you don't need a minister either. You can just have a, a civil officiant. Right. So it doesn't have to be, even be religious. Yeah. Right, for the legal parts of it. I know what you're saying. But for a funeral or a celebration of life, I mean, families can come together and create something memorable for sure. And how often how often are you finding that's happening? Well, I'm, I am a funeral celebrant. So... Um, so, you know, I, I do quite a few funerals because there's a lot of people who, you know, who don't belong to a church or there may be, they might be spiritual, but they don't have a minister and they want something really, um, you know, out of the box and meaningful. And so they'll have someone like me create a ceremony for them. And the, the, someone, who, someone who's religious or spiritual, um, and I have issues with the term spiritual. We'll, we'll stick to we'll stick to religious. That's another um, podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other podcast. I could rant for hours on that one. Um, I, I, do is there in your in your um, dealings with people and death? Is there less of a fear? Is is uh, religion an insulator um, to fear of dying? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that i mean i think i think for some people their faith can be a comfort for sure because they have their beliefs as to what happens to their loved ones um but with that said i mean i do a lot i do a lot of funerals for people who are not religious at all and um you know they they'll there might be people that are attending the funeral who are religious and they'll say oh you know i'm really surprised how comforting that was even though it's totally not religious so, I don't know if that makes sense. I'm talking more about the ceremony, I guess. But no, that, um, I I come from an Orthodox uh, Christian background, Ukrainian, 
And uh, the ceremony was just, it was all too much for me. The, there were all the robes and the chanting and the in- incense burning. And I didn't find it, I didn't find it comforting in the least. <laughs> I found it right. a little, a little much. Well, and that, I mean, the whole, this is the thing that people forget too, right? A ceremony isn't for, um, you know, just for a show. There, there's a purpose to having a ceremony, but the purpose of it, it needs to be meaningful. So if you are, let's say, you know, a Irish Roman Catholic and having a Catholic funeral is comforting for you, then that's the way you should go. But if you are somebody who isn't and you go to the funeral home and, and you're, you know, they say, uh, you know, here's a minister that can do your funeral for you. And the minister shows up or the officiant shows up, you know, half an hour before and they kind of have their script where they fill in the blanks, throw in the person's name here, there, everywhere. And they do the same ceremony every time they do a funeral. That's not going to be meaningful either. What, what are some of the oddest, oddest uh... You, you might be hesitant to uh, answer this one, but what are some of the oddest requests that uh, come through uh, when dealing with families? Um, like, do you mean, do you mean, do you mean uh, like some of the interesting things I've done with ceremonies? Yeah, we can start there. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I've done I've done all kinds of things. I'm just trying to think now at the top of my head. Uh, I'll give you an example of a young man who died in Ottawa who was um, he had a you know he had a long term uh, lung chronic lung illness and he also had um, global developmental delays. And one thing that he loved more than anything was to ride the OC transpo bus like that. He had his route and he got on there and he'd shut out the stops and he was, you know, he had his bus pass. He'd get on there with, with his worker who they do it for three hours a day, like just drive around. (laughs) So when he died and his mother asked me to do his funeral, I contacted OC transpo to see if they would um, bring a bus and allow the family to do one last, ceremonial tour on one of his routes after the funeral, which they did, but they, they went a step further. And uh, well, I asked them also if they would um, send some bus drivers to act as an honor guard for him. Mm -hmm. And they did, they sent, you know, they sent managers and and bus drivers and they all kind of lined the aisle for um, when the mother walked up and they, during the ceremony, they, they gave her an honorary operator certificate made out to his name, you know, because he, he kind of knew all the routes. He was, you know, he should have been a bus driver. Yeah. And so, so that was, that's just one example, you know, of, um, so after the funeral, everybody went out, spilled outside, and they took a photo of everybody sitting on the ground in front of this bus. And we were all asked to wear Superman T-shirts, because his nickname was Super Kev. So we all had Superman T-shirts on with the OC Transpo bus. And um, the family got on the bus then and, you know, went for a drive while everyone waited. And then after they came back, you know, they had the reception and stuff like that. But I, I think I'm actually familiar with that story. It seems it's, oh, is that right? it sounds like a familiar story to me. Hmm. Well, I mean, there. so, so it's really, it's getting to know somebody um you know, through the family and the friends. And then my, my job as a celebrant is to, is to figure out what's going to be most meaningful to honor that person. And also for the family, you know, what's going to help them the most. And I think it's a, it's a bit of a, 
it's sad when people say, you know, when I die, I don't want anything because I think that they're so used to these crappy cookie cutter ceremonies that yeah. they, they don't realize how helpful and meaningful and amazing it can be for the people that are left behind. Yeah. And well, funerals are for the living. I mean, exactly. There is. Yes. To, to say you you don't want anything. I mean, that's your choice, but you're, you're not really thinking of, uh, of those that love you and uh, care about you that surround yeah. you. Yeah. And I, and I think that interferes with people's grief too, when they don't have that, that marking of, um, you know, of this transition of life with the person to life without the person, you know, um, you were talking, talking about suicide earlier, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, sometimes those funerals or celebrations of life can be the worst as far as, uh, depending on who does it, you know, it can be skirted around, you know, like the elephant in the room, or it's done in a way that there's, um, you know, shame and guilt and this kind of stuff attached to it. And I, I think that, you know, it's important to honor people, it, all of all of them, you know, yeah. not one person goes through this life without, you know, struggles and mistakes and all of those things. And I think, we do a disservice when we put people way up on a pedestal, um, you know, and, and we don't honor them fully, you when know. We, and I we separate them from the herd. In, yeah. In that, you know, suicide in particular being such an emotionally charged uh, topic. Yeah. Um, be, I mean, I, I'd love to see how you work that one because it, it would be an emotionally charged um uh, event because of all the, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe that person had, had great reason or good reason for ending his life, you know, whether it's, you know, an incurable disease, pain, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They, they may, may well have uh, gone, gone out, not exactly as they would like, but, you know, on their own terms. Yeah. So, so that I suppose yeah. would need to be worked in. Yeah, I mean, and I, I get called to do a lot of funerals for for that type of death, you know, um, and people of all different ages and all different circumstances and backgrounds and, um, you know, and, and hard, hard, uh, you know, I shouldn't say hard death because death is hard, you know, death is hard. It depends on, you know, the relationship that people have with somebody. But when you're doing a death for, you know, a funeral for a baby that died at three days of age, or you're doing um, a death where, you know, there's been a violent death or um, self-death or, you know, whatever, there's, there, there is, uh, there's a way of doing it that, it that it's respectful and it's honorable and it's real. It's not all sugar-coated and rainbows and unicorns, you know, that you... That you do it in that you do it in a way that um, uh, really helps really helps the family and the friend more than anything, but in a way that is you know there's not all this weird there's so much weirdness that people have and again that that has to do with people's you know overall um, feeling around death and dying to begin with. Yeah, I I had the honor of uh, saying a eulogy at my wife's uh, grandmother's uh, funeral, and. Uh... She she was a wonderful woman, and every time we got together, we got stink drunk. <laughs> but um, as, a, as as an older woman, she could really pack her booze away. <laughs> but uh, that's not what killed her. 
Um, uh, during the eulogy, I, I mentioned that you know, everybody's saying nice things about about the person, but that leaves out the part where you know she could be very volatile, you know, very angry. Yes. Um, yeah. And and you need to. I felt that you needed to work that in there, and and as it turned out, it it went over well, but. Do you, do you find people want to sugarcoat things, or do you do you think you tell it like it is? Well, I guess I've always been known as a tell it like it is kind of a gal, which you know is is good good I think for the most part. But you you also have to know. I mean, I also have to be able to read people. You know, right. so so I mean, if I meet with a family and 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 it's very clear that uh, there is a lot of shame around because there's shame for people who are left behind especially with like suicide for example you know some people feel like they feel they feel this shame and when you can when you can talk about the um you know i remember with with one in particular that you know it was there was no doubt that this person had tons of family and friends and people who cared about him and i said there's no, like, there's no amount of love that could compete with, you know, what he had experienced with his biology, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Because if love, if love could have saved him, he would be here. You know, there's, there are things that we don't, we don't have control over. You know, it's in, in some families, I've had families that say, I know he has struggled his whole life and I know, I know he's at peace and I know this was of his choosing to um, to die in this way at this time, and I I feel that that was right for his soul, you know. So there's people who have their spiritual beliefs that that you, for me, it doesn't matter what I think. I have to meet people where they are, and and then craft a ceremony that's you know that's meaningful for them. Like if somebody says to me, "Well, everything happens for a reason," I personally think that's a load but it's not my place to say them really you think that it's not true let me tell you why i don't i don't say that i say you know do you believe that okay so how are we going to work that into a way that is not going to offend the people who think that's a load of crap <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's a, there's a, there's an art to this <laughs> i salute you because that would be a tough one <laughs> yeah i guess it's all been easy it's not always easy but no but, you know I've not been known to bite my tongue as often as I should. Yeah. <laughs> and it, always, and it all happens for a reason. It's one of those things where it really gets yeah. me going. I know, me too. I mean, and I, you know, because because of what I do, I I see, and you with your with your background and your history and your lived experience, there are things that certain people are um, see, witness, or have revealed to them that, you know, some people have no idea. Their imagination can't even can't even um, think up some of the things that people have to survive and endure in this world. And so, when people are like, "Well, God will only give you what you can handle," you know, I think, well, that's lovely. But let me tell you, I have heard some things that would make your head spin. And you know what? The fact is, people do get more than they can handle at times. That's yeah. a fact. Yeah, people you know, break that's under just, pressure. That's just, 
Yeah, and it's nice to think that there's this, you know, there's this whole social order and this whole order of the universe and whatever. And if that's comforting for people, then whatever, whatever floats your boat. But, um, you know, that's that's not what I, <laughs> not what I believe personally. But again, my job isn't to, my job isn't to preach. My job is to meet people where they are at and and try to help them uh, honor their loved ones. Yes. Um... Do you, do you think there's such a thing? Well, first of all, I guess I probably already know the answer to this. What do you think of uh, doctor-assisted uh, dying? Medical, medical assistance suicide? and death? Yeah. Um, again, I, I, think, I think that, you know, I think that people, people have to have the, uh, the right to make decisions that work for them, you know. I mean, I, what I think of something personally is different than whether or not I would support somebody who is choosing maid. You know, if I, if I, if I have never been in that position, I'm not in a place to pass judgment, but I think that people need to have the choice. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of, uh, you know, friends who have passed away from cancer, died from cancer, um, who would would have liked to to have had that extra dose of morphine to uh you know relax their breathing muscles so that they could just yeah. die but do you think there's such a thing as a good death i mean my my personal uh, experience is that, is that people do not go gentle into that good night they generally fight it well yeah i mean this so there's two there's two parts to that that i'll that i'll you know address, I suppose. One is if a person hasn't accepted the fact that they're going to die, which no, if anybody says they're not in denial about death and dying, that's a load of crap too. And I'll, I'll tell you why in a second, but um, when people, people who get a terminal illness, I mean, part of the process is that they eventually come to terms with the fact that they're going to die and hopefully they'll get you know, those have those conversations with people that, that need to happen. They, need, they forgive people that they need to forgive and they do all those things and they come to a, a place of acceptance that they're going to die. So that's part of it. But the other part of it, and this is where the made argument, I think, um, gets very heated, is that one of the things I think that we need to look at in, in Canada or as a culture is that People have the um, access to really good palliative care so that they're not in a place of suffering at the end. So when you were talking about the morphine, you know, just to help with that air hunger, it's called. Mm -hmm. When people are in hospice, so um, so like we have a, a freestanding hospice here in Renfrew County, which is an amazing thing that we have one here. People that, that die in a hospice or have doctors who are well uh, trained in palliative care generally do not have any suffering in their dying because all of those things are managed with medication. Yes. So they don't have those awful, uh, the air hunger or, um, uh, you know, sometimes people have a lot of secretions and it can be very, very disturbing for the, for the family sitting there witnessing it. Oh. And also it can be very uncomfortable for the person dying. Well, we have medications that dry up those secretions. We have medications to help with that air hunger. With those common symptoms of, of dying, there's medications for that. Yeah, so I, I think definitely that it's much preferable to 
I, I mean, I've had a number of patients over the years with COPD, and it's just not nice for the family to 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 witness and and watch. Um, there's no, a, I I agree, I agree. You know, but what I, I guess what I'm suggesting is that. We need to, we also need to advocate for really good palliative care. So people's deaths do not, they're not having uh, unnecessary suffering. With that said, a lot of deaths don't look like the movies, you know, where they, they just kind of slip away and their head clunks over to the side and they, they look like they're asleep. You know, some, some people have a lot of struggles at end of life and it's not, uh, it, it can be very difficult for people to witness. So, I mean, as far as good death goes, I think, you know, for some people, a good death is how you define it, right? For some people, I know people who say they don't want any medication when they die because they think it's, there's some part of their human experience to go through all of those different parts of dying. Mm. Um, you know, it's like with birth, right? Where people say, I want all the drugs you have, drug me up to the gills. I don't want to feel a thing. And then you have people that are like, I'd like to be squatting under a shrub with a full moon and chanting around me. I mean, it just depends on what your preferences are. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think, I think if we have people who are choosing made because their symptoms are not being managed well, that could be managed well, that's a big problem with our system. Um, but then there, but then there are illnesses like, you know, ALS and, uh, for example, that where, where, you know, there's no medications that are going to help with, um, with some of that, that suffering. And so, um, you know, having that option of made is a good one. Yeah. Um, and living here in the Ottawa Valley, um, which is a Bible belt sort of area, it's, I think it's the discussion about having uh, medically assisted dying is, is, is a volatile one. And uh, I, 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 I really reject or really get angered when somebody says, no, I don't think we should allow uh, assisted suicide or assisted dying um, because it's not part of God's plan. And right. It just, it just, Grinds my great gears to, yeah, to, yeah. to hear that. You know, you, you can if it's if if these are your clients and you're 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 trying to you you got to work through that and you have to work with the family on that. But if if somebody is requesting um, a death that's going to end, you know, pain um, or or gasping for air, death, then uh, they should be allowed that that dignity. Yeah. Well, and, and remember, too, you know, there's a process with medical assistance in dying and people can have, be assessed, you know, people can be assessed to see if they're a good candidate for it, because there's certain things you want people to be in their right frame of mind and not feeling pressured, you know, by a family member who wants to speed up their death, for example. But, um, you know, so there is a process. And and if people are at the stage where they have air hunger and those symptoms, they're very, very close to death, and they're usually so uh, gone so inward that they're not able to make that decision. So the decision for made needs to be made long before a person gets to that point. Right. Right. And then they make they make they set a date of when they're going to going to do it, and then um, you know then they can they can do it in their home usually. Um, 
but I, yeah, like, I, I think that we have to be very careful not to make assumptions about what everybody else's beliefs are, especially religion, religious beliefs, you know? Mm. I think that we can't assume that people are, uh, are Christian or that are even religious. You know, I think, I think that's, um, I mean, I think, I think it's pretty, in a way, it's kind of arrogant in a way for people to assume that, you know, that they shouldn't be allowed to make a decision about their own living and dying because of everybody else's um, religious beliefs. Yeah. I, I think, I think we're on, on the same page with that one. And again, that's a whole other podcast. I know. Um, I know. Look at, we have now what have 17 different podcasts in the, in the works. <laughs> <laughs> you and I you're are going to have a long lasting relationship. <laughs> you're, you're starting to write down all the different topics. <laughs> Yeah, um, I can I can hook you up. I know a lot of people. But are there any male doulas? Like doula, you mentioned in the beginning that most people are familiar with birth doulas. I don't actually think they are. I mean, I didn't learn about doulas until a couple of years ago when one of my friends became a doula. And I said, right. what the hell is that? You know, I pictured um, naked women dancing around a tree even under a full yeah. moon chanting yeah. or something yeah that's what it is <laughs> Tossing flower i've done petals. a lot of a lot of dancing around trees chanting no it's you know because it's such a weird word right it sounds so uh kind of new agey and yeah so no like a hippie chick yeah exactly but you know i've when i was a birth doula i think i had attended about a hundred births you know by the time i had my daughter and i i had gone done all kinds of births you know and uh, you know, cesarean births and heavily medicated births, water births, home births, mostly hospital births. But, um, and I know it's kind of like that with dying. It's it's really just um, being there as a, as a person who has, you know, knowledge and information and can offer tips as far as comfort measure goes with, with comforting the person who's dying, supporting the family as they go through that sitting with them and helping them when they're doing those final, you know, days and hours of, of vigiling. Um, and then also helping them if they want to have a home funeral, you know, if they want to have a home funeral um, or a home wake, there are certain things that need to happen, you know, to the body to do that. So, um, you know, a death doula can give the family information so that they can follow through with that. We're really more of an educator, you know, after the fact, but, before before the death, we're there for for support, emotional support, comfort measures, just like a, a birth doula, you know, nothing medical. Hmm. What is a doula? A doula, unlike a midwife, or are they quite? Yeah. Similar? No, a, a, when it comes to birth, um, a birth doula is. Uh, solely for emotional, informational, um, physical, continuous support. And a midwife or an obstetrician or a family doctor, you know, they look after the medical care. So their first priority is the safe, healthy delivery of a baby. And the second, their second um, priority is the mother. Whereas with a birth doula, the first priority is the mother and her partner. And the, the second priority is the baby because we don't do anything medical or clinical. Okay. But it contributes to the, the healthy, safe passage of the baby when the mother and the, and the partner are well looked after. Yeah, because I, I looked at your website, and I was quite impressed, actually. It was very female-centric, um, as I guess I would have expected. 
Because um, I'm female? Like no, that? No, that? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Don't get ready to snap. <laughs> it's very, because of, of all the, uh, I should have said maybe empowerment more than centric. Because um, I read uh, about the uh, first menses and the celebration of that. Um, and geez, what else struck me? There was a couple. Of- oh, yeah. The, the celebrant website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Did you go to the other website, the ready or not website? I know. It's I all the death, all the death stuff. No, I don't think I did. Oh, I thought that's the one that you went to. I don't think you do it. You're doing well with all of your questions considering you hadn't gone to that website. <laughs> well, I did, did a lot of, uh, did a lot of reading. Did you do some Googling? I did a lot of Googling. You're easy to Google. I can send you some links after. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, well, I mean, I do, I do marriages, and you know, as a civil as a civil marriage officiant, I do um, I do marriages for all people who can legally be married. Um, you know, and then of course I do funerals, and I, I do ceremonies, um, coming of age ceremonies. I mean, I can certainly do coming of age ceremonies for boys. Um, but you know, I, I think it would make more sense that I would work with the family or with the, the men of the family to help them to execute that as opposed to having me there. Cause I don't think my energy would be, would be, um, appropriate for a coming of age for, for a boy. I, I've never even heard of a coming of age other than through the Hebrew, uh, um, religion where they celebrate a boy, boy and a girl's coming of age. But I don't, yeah. I'm not really familiar yeah. with anybody else doing it. Well, you know, you know, the thing with, with, uh, especially with people who don't belong to a religion. So if you, you know, if you're Catholic, people go through the confirmation, that's oh, kind yeah. of their yeah. adolescent kind of ritual. Right. But we, we think that if you don't have a religion, then you're, you don't benefit from having rituals and ceremonies. But in fact, we all as humans benefit from having rituals and ceremonies. It's just, having somebody to, uh, you know, to help you create that so that it's meaningful, like that all the rituals and symbols and, and that kind of thing are meaningful to the person who's being honored. Recognizing the milestone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I do ceremonies for new babies. If, if a person doesn't belong to a church or religion, they still want to mark the birth of their baby. And you can do that in beautiful ways. You know, you can, you can plant tr- a tree or, um, Oh, I mean, I've done all kinds of things with, with new babies, you know, where, where the family and friends gather around and get involved in, uh, you know, in, in marking that big moment in their family's history and life is the, you know, is the arrival of a new person. People who have adopted a child, you know, you have a ceremony for those, for those families to, to bring these children into the family tree that maybe weren't born to them, but are now part of the family. I, th- I think we need... We need you in the military uh, as a life celebrant or a death doula. I think because uh, w- we get padres, so you get the Protestant, the Muslim pod- uh, padre, and and the uh, yep. Catholics. But we don't have a humanist. The, the Americans have a humanist that you you can go see for to deal with these things. But certainly a doula would be uh, would be appropriate. Yep. Yep. So maybe maybe yep. I can talk to the CDS. Well, once the CDS gets sorted out from the sexual abuse scandal that's going on, um, and get, yeah, right. a, get a doula hired in there. I mean, there's there's uh, there's so much you know there's so much potential. I think you know when I look at just what we're going through right now with COVID and 
um, you know, part of the reason why I, I switched gears a little bit in the last year and, and um, became registered with the, uh, the College of Social Workers so I could practice counseling is because, you know, people are experiencing grief and a lot of people don't even identify it as that because a lot of people think grief is what happens after a death, but grief is what happens after any loss. And I think once this whole pandemic thing settles down eventually. I don't want to say we get back to normal because I don't think we will, no. but this will, this will, you know, settle down where we'll have some kind of, you know, idea of what, what life moving forward is going to look like. And I think that's where we're going to see a lot of people, you know, where they can finally get out of this place of survival mode and they're going to let their guard down and they're going to get hit with, tremendous grief they're gonna you know their bodies are gonna finally go my god we've been through a lot there's been a lot of losses especially people who've had loved ones who died in the hospital and they couldn't see them or they couldn't have a funeral or do any of those rituals so i'm right now like i'm starting to you know imagine community community grief circles you know like hold hold on to that thought for a moment julie i'm going to press stop so we're going to do this in a two-part thing because i don't think we'll be done in the next two minutes Okay. So uh, we're we're community grief, right? Yeah. Okay, hang on. <laughs> 